Romans chapter 6. Lord, speak to our hearts tonight abundantly and powerfully, wonderfully from your word, what you're wanting to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first five chapters of Romans is concerning justification. There's a whole other aspect to the Christian walk called sanctification. Now, justification is just as if you never have sinned. And that's what Christ did on the cross. He redeemed us. He was the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means that he died in our place. So the punishment you should have received in hell, he took on his own body. He was pierced. He was bruised. He was broken. He died taking your sins down with him. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin. He actually became sin on that cross. And therefore, through his death, through his being beaten in our place, we receive what's called justification, just as if we've never sinned. Now, he rose again. That means he conquered our sin. Now, had he not rose again, then we would still be in our sin, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, because although he died with our sin, it did us no good because he didn't conquer our sin. But Christ conquered our sin as well, which means that uh, it's buried in the deepest sea, scattered far as the east is to the west, never ever to be brought up again for condemnation before Christ ever again. We'll never be condemned with that sin. He took all the sin upon him, the past sin, the very first sin of Adam, all the way to the very last sin that man ever commits, probably me, and uh, all of the sins. God took care of all of them on the cross. Now, God wishes all men to come and receive of his sacrifice. Not all men will, though. But it's there. So there's, man's going to be without no excuse before God because every man has the same exact advantage of coming to Christ. Christ has done the work on the cross. So if you read the first three chapters of the book of Romans, you will see the wrath of the Father. In Romans chapter 4 and 5, or actually the end of chapter 3, and then in verse 4 and 5, you'll see the redemption of the Son. Now, when Jesus Christ died and rose again, he sent the Holy Spirit into the world. So every man right now is under the sense of judgment, that there is a judgment to come of what true righteousness is. And... um, Sin, judgment, and um, righteousness. Those three things the Holy Spirit's declaring to every man. But for us who are believers, the Holy Spirit actually came in to our lives. Now, the one thing you'll discover very quickly in your Christian walk is that the sins you struggled with before being a Christian, you'll still struggle with after being a Christian. Now, what do we say then? We didn't get saved? No. We did get saved. What do we say? Our body didn't get saved. Big difference. Your body didn't get saved, unfortunately. That brain of yours, those hands of yours, those feet of yours, those fleshly appetites, the ability of character in your will. In other words, you didn't get character the next day after getting saved. If you had a weak character, 
You still have a weak character after being saved. Now, what do we say to that? Oh, no. If I have a weak character, if I'm still struggling with those same old sins, I'll never be able to live the victorious Christian life. No, that's not true. Because that's where we pick up here in chapter 6, where we're talking about now sanctification. God is not leaving you with that weak character. God is not going to leave you in that state where sin dominates your life as it did before you were a Christian. Now, the day after you're a Christian, that sin still may dominate your life as it did before you were a Christian. But it doesn't mean it's going to continue in this way. God's Holy Spirit lives in you. His Holy Spirit came into your life. And so we have the condemnation of the Father in the first three chapters. We have the redemption of the Son in the end of chapter 3 through chapter 5. And now we have the sanctification, the working of the power of God's Holy Spirit. So justification is our position with Christ. Where our sin abounds, grace is going to abound more. He's already seen you seated together with him in heavenly places. That's not going to change. That's our position. That's our promise. That's our propitiation. We can hang in there. Sanctification, we have the practical walk. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit. So now we have to understand this most important aspect. Now in this aspect of sanctification, as we're going to learn in chapter 6, 7, and 8, is where we have to realize our body and its weaknesses and what we can do and what we can't do and how to keep our body under that our spirit can rule and reign in victory. And so last week we saw there in the first two verses, <laughs> what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Question mark. So the point is, is this, is that Sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Well, let's go ahead and continue in sin, some may say. Now, you hear this kind of persecution towards the gospel of grace, and that's what the Bible calls the gospel in Acts chapter 20, the gospel of grace. And what they'll say is this. If you tell everybody their sins are all forgiven, if you tell everybody where sin abounds, grace much more will abound, if you tell them that if you fall into sin, God will forgive you, and you tell that with confidence, what's going to happen is this. People are going to go, wow, once saved, always saved. Thanks, I'm going to go out and party. This is great. I can still go to heaven and do drugs. All right, you know. And then I'll just, right before I die, I'll see the other car coming going, God, forgive me. Ah! You know, and I'm, I'm in heaven. You know, there's no problem. I've got it covered. Or even if I die in my sleep. God's already forgiven me. It's already done. So now I say to that person, I'm very glad you know about the gospel of grace. Why? Because the gospel of grace does reveal a man's heart. One person says, all right, I have a license to sin. Do you know why they're sinning? It's not because of the gospel of grace. It's because that's what's still in their hearts. Jesus said it's out of the heart comes all the sin, the hatred, the anger, the fornication, the adulteries, the murders, all those things. They don't come from the gospel of grace. They come from the heart. Because you see another person who hears that gospel of grace, they just, they're brought to their knees. They're going, how could one person be so lovely? 
How could God be so good and kind and gentle? How is it that God, knowing my fears, my concerns about my sinful condition, soothe and comfort me with one ointment? That beautiful grace of God. I know I'll never be separated from him, past, present, and future. I'll never be separated from him because of his love for me and the grace that he's given through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Oh, I want to love him. I want to know everything there is to know about him. I want to know everything he thinks. I want to know everything he would do. I want to be just like him, and I just want to love all that he is. And so they dive into the Bible, and they try to hear his heart, know his mind, and they try to walk just like him and talk just like him. And now somebody might come up and say, hey, brother, let's go party. You're saved, right? Yeah, I'm saved. All right, let's, let's go do some drugs. Let's, let's go party. Let's, let's go out and live an immoral lifestyle. And that person will look at them going, how could I sin against one who loves me so much and done so much? Impossible. That's what Joseph said to Potiphar's wife. She tried to get him to lie with her and and he said, how could I sin against God? And he left his jacket and he fled. He was truly a lover of God. Now, I want to preach a radical gospel of grace. Why? I want to see man's heart. So the one who says, all right, the gospel of grace gives me a license to sin, then I say, all right, you're not yet born again. <laughs> it's obvious in your heart. Your heart has revealed you. You see, when we're born again, that old sinful nature is taken out, the circumcision of our heart. Our heart now says, I want to serve the Lord. I don't want to sin. Now, does that mean I don't sin? No. Sometimes my flesh still gets the better of me. My heart's grieved. My heart's crying out, don't, 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 don't. My flesh is going, shut up. I'm going for it. And then after my flesh wins out, I'm grieved. The Holy Spirit is just, oh, I can, I'm just, I'm hurting in my heart. I'm hurting in my conscience. And I'm just, I'm vexed and depressed and bummed out. And, and I'm saying, God, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. And there I'm sitting in my room in depression. And then eventually the scolding's over and, and God lets me see the light at the end of the tunnel. But there's that time that even as a Christian, I feel that separation from God. Even as a Christian, I feel those dark times. Even as a Christian, I feel for a moment, do I even know God? Why? Because there is such a severity of the damage to our soul, to our conscience, to our mind, because sin is damaging. And we need to understand that. We will understand that tonight. But the first thing we need to understand is our position and how sanctification is a certainty for our hope in, our justification is our hope in sanctification. So shall we continue in sin? Paul says it's an impossibility. Why? Look at verse 3. Do you not know? You might underline that word know. We're going to see three of them tonight. The person who doesn't know grace says, no, 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 you can't. The person who knows grace says, no, K-N-O-W, no, K-N-O-W, and no, K-N-O-W. We're going to see the no in verse 3, the no in verse 6, and the no in verse 9. And so 
the Bible is saying no to all of us, but not no. We need a law to keep our flesh in mind, but you need to know your position in Christ and what the Holy Spirit is at work doing so we can also have victory even while in this flesh. So in verse 3, do you not know? In other words, you should. I, I don't understand. If you don't know this, something's wrong, Paul's saying. That as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Listen to this. This is Paul tying back into chapter 5, verse 12 to verse 21. Remember, Paul had taught us this most spiritual, most in-depth insight. Adam was in the garden, and he sinned. Guess who else was in the garden? Eve. Yeah, I know. No, I don't mean her. The animals. No, no, I don't mean the animals either. Satan. No, I'm not talking about Satan. You were in the garden. You were there in his loins. And so the Bible teaches us when Adam sinned, you also sinned. That's why you were born into this world in your sinful nature. Now the Bible also tells us through the second man, the last Adam, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, it said that we were also hanging on that cross with Christ. We were also there with him. Well, our sin part of us anyway was there with him. And so when Christ died, you also died there on that cross. When Christ rose again, you also rose again with him. You were there with Christ. Now, I don't understand this. This is a spiritual concept. It just sort of blows my mind. But this is what the Bible tells us. In the spiritual realm, you were actually there with Adam in the garden. In the spiritual realm, you were actually with Christ on the cross, and you were with him in the grave, and you were with him when he rose again. What Adam accomplished in the garden affected you. What Jesus did upon the cross affected you. And so we need to understand now, as Jesus said there in John 17, the most radical statement, Oh, Father, now as I am in you, and you are in me, and we are in them, and they are in us, in a perfect unity. Now, Jesus said that before the cross. That we were in a perfect unity with Christ before the cross. Now, I can't explain this to you in the physical realm. Of course, I can't explain electricity either, but I still use that little lever on the wall. I mean, science can tell me that in my body, is so much DNA that if I were to line my DNA cells up one next to the other, it would go all the way 93 million miles to the sun and back and back and back 400 times. There's that much DNA in my body. Now, if you're not as fat as me, it may be 399 times. But the bottom line is, is that our DNA cells will go back to the sun and back 400 times. Yet, if I were to condense that DNA, it's the size of an ice cube. That's mind-boggling when you think about it. And in each DNA, there's 1,900 volumes of information. So now you start thinking about this, and you're going, how can that be? 
I, I don't know. But it happened. Now, in the same way, in the spiritual realm, we all sin in Adam. We see the repercussions of that. We die. The day you eat of that, you'll die. Death came to the world. Every man's born into this world with that sinful nature and has to be taught not to follow that sinful nature or destruction comes. The child that's not raised up, learning how to suppress that sinful nature becomes a curse to his mother, a curse to his father, and a curse to society. And so we have to understand that, no, once we said, Jesus Christ, be the Lord of my life, that sin was destroyed. Sin singular. Now, if you read in the Bible, you'll see sin and sins, plural. We confess our sins, but our sin was taken away in the cross. That nature that was actually our nature, that loved to sin, was destroyed was completely taken away, is no longer with us. That's why it said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 through 10, we looked at it last night, or last week, those who continue a life of sin have never seen God or known God. Why? Because that's why Christ came, to destroy sin, singular. And he who keeps on sinning has never experienced a relationship with God. Why? Because it's impossible. Because our hearts cannot continue a life of sin because of the grieving that goes on. If you as a believer try to continue in sin, the repercussions would be so severe, as we see in 1 Corinthians 11, people there got weak, they became sick, and they even died. So they would not be judged with the world. So therefore God went ahead and judged them. Why? Because they weren't judging themselves. They weren't willing to say, as the Holy Spirit was saying, you're sinning, to say, you're right, I'm sinning, forgive me. Okay, just move on now. But don't keep doing that. It's not good for you. And again, let's make it very, very clear that God is not trying to keep us all members of a country club. <laughs> so therefore, we all have to have the right coat and the right tie. So therefore, I want a certain lifestyle because I want everybody to look like they're part of the same sorority. Therefore, let's all have the same lifestyle. No. God is wanting us to have one life. There's one way, one truth, one life, because that is the life of success and prosperity and health and healing and fruitfulness. Sin is not sin because God said it's wrong. Well, why is lying wrong? Well, God said it. Oh, man, if God hadn't said it, I could have really had some fun being a liar. No, lying is wrong because it destroys your mind, your soul, your relationships. Without trust, life can't exist. So therefore, we discover that sin is bad. It's bad in and of itself. That's why God said it's wrong. I don't tell my kids, don't touch the hot barbecue because I'm a killjoy. I don't want them to touch the hot barbecue because I don't want their skin to get fried. The same way God says, don't commit immorality. Why? Because he doesn't want your soul to get fried. Don't do drugs because he doesn't want you to get your mind and your emotions fried and your body fried. God is not trying to be a killjoy. God's given us all things to enjoy in purity and in innocence and in honesty in true morality that is expressing his nature. I don't have to convince somebody a flower is beautiful 
It's beautiful because it's beautiful. And it looks that way because it expresses the nature of God. I don't have to convince somebody that innocent impurity is beautiful. It's beautiful because it's beautiful and it expresses the very nature of God. Now, if a flower gets destroyed, I don't have to convince somebody that's not a good thing. They can tell that something beautiful becomes unbeautiful is not good. In the same way, it's obvious when something that's pure and innocent and lovely, like sexuality, like morality, like honesty, I don't have to explain to them that when that fades away or begins to get ugly, that's a bad thing. Our conscience, we're made in the image of God. Everyone, everybody knows that. We all know that because we know what's beautiful, because we're made in the image of God to see what is beautiful. Now, the world in their twisted mind because they're being puppeted by the devil, wants to call evil good and good evil. What we're doing here tonight in the world's mind is absolutely stupid. Going to church when I could be out at the happy hour? Going to church when I could be down dancing in the nightclub? Going to church when I could be home right now watching some sports? Stupid. Gosh, you're a bunch of idiots down there at church. Because good is evil to them. But yet, they're evil. They consider good. Oh, man, we had a great party last night. I was so drunk, I don't even remember the last two hours or even how I got home. I, I remember when I was uh, 13 years old, my brother brought one of his friends home because he was too drunk to make it home. And there he slept in the room, and the next morning he got up. He was so proud. He had filled the trash can about a quarter full of vomit of, of alcohol. And he was so proud of that. Smell that, man, that's alcohol. Look at that. Look at how much. Man, you, he was proud of that. And I'm like going, man, you are sick. He was so proud that he had thrown up alcohol because, man, this is a sign of manhood. Stupid. Idiotic. Evil. But yet in his mind it was good. It was noble. It was... Heroic, it was manly that he was able at the age of a minor to get into a college sorority and drink their alcohol without them knowing it. So we need to understand and know that we were with Christ when he died. That sinful nature of ours also is dead. It's no longer a part of us. And he goes on to explain this in verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So just as Christ died and rose again, so now we can die to that old sinful nature and live again, walking as Jesus walked, talking as Jesus talked. Jesus said the works I did, you can do, and even greater works than these, you can do. Now, he says there in verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So if we have experienced his death on the cross, we've been planted or united together in his death, then certainly, for a fact, we also will have that same power in the resurrection life. So if you are certain here tonight, if I were to ask you, are you certain that Christ died on the cross? Yes, I am. Are you certain that he took your sins on him on the cross? Yes, I'm certain. 
Are you certain that he rose again from the dead? Yes, I am. Are you certain then when you said, Jesus Christ, forgive my sin, it was already a done deal on the cross, and that your sins are all taken away, and for sure you're going to heaven because of his work on the cross? Yes, I am. Justification. Absolute certainty. I do not doubt that I am born again and on my way to heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross. Okay. That's a very good point. I'm glad you have faith in that. Then you should have an equal amount of faith in sanctification. Because it was also done on the cross and through the resurrection. When Jesus Christ raised from the dead, he has given you the power by the Holy Spirit to live in sanctification. So now I'm going to come to you and ask you, so can you stop your life of drinking? Oh man, I don't know if that's possible. Hold it, hold it, hold it. The same cross that gave you the certainty of eternal life and forgiveness of sins is the same cross that has given you the power to overcome your flesh practically today. Can you get rid of that pornography and quit looking at it? Oh man, I don't know. I've been struggling with that for 20 years. I, I really don't know. I, I've tried to kick the habit several times, but it's, it ends up back in my house somewhere. Hey, if you have faith in justification, you can have the same certainty and faith in sanctification. How? By the same power of the cross. The power of the cross not only forgave you of your sins and gave you the born-again lifestyle and the gift of eternal life, but the same power of the cross gives you practical power every single day to die to yourself daily. Daily denying yourself, daily taking up a cross, and daily following Jesus, walking with him in purity of life. And this is what we symbolize in baptism when we have water baptism. Now, I can't say that Romans 6 is really talking about baptism, water baptism, because actually there's a number of baptisms mentioned in the Bible. Interesting enough, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, stay with me here tonight. What one baptism is an essential baptism? There is one baptism. And if that baptism didn't take place, we would be in our sin today. Which baptism is that? I'll tell you which one. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Turn over there with me if you would. And let's see which one baptism is essential. Matthew chapter 4. Actually, we're going to look at the last part of chapter 3, then into chapter 4. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Are you going to... to and you are you're coming to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Listen to this. Permit it so now, what? For thus it is fitting, what? To fulfill all righteousness. Underline that. Then he allowed him. 
Then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove alighting upon him. Then suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, let's stop there just a minute. Why was Jesus baptized? Well, some might say it was to affirm John's the Baptist's ministry, that it's truly from God. Some might say it was to identify with us. Some say that it was a declaration to the Father that, he, we, that one, Jesus was willing to obey, two, Jesus was submitting uh, unto death and burial, and three, that Jesus uh, had expectation um, of the, the power of the resurrection. That's what he was declaring to the Father. Or four, some might say it's an illustration of the Trinity. Jesus, the Spirit descending, and the Father speaking. I've heard all of those. But there's a verse there that sort of catches us. To fulfill all righteousness. Now how would Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? I think the key is in Matthew chapter 4. Notice that then right after, immediately following, Jesus was led out by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the God. And the devil took him up into a holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give angel charge concerning you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Now this is interesting. Because when you begin to think about it, we know that the Old Testament is a shadow of understanding the New Testament. And sometimes there are rather difficult passages in the New Testament that once we understand the Old Testament prophecy of them, that all of a sudden the New Testament becomes very clear. Now as we think about it, in the Old Testament, who was in the water, surrounded by the water, and came out of the water? Actually, three different people. We had Noah. Noah was in the water, surrounded by the water. And what happened when they were finally on dry ground after the flood? A dove came descending down upon him. And that was the sign that he could now get off the ark. But what happened to Noah? The last word we hear on old Noah, he was naked in his tent, drunk. What about Moses? His name actually means drawn out of water. And we know that the Bible tells us that that cloud was a baptism that him and the whole group of them went under. 
that he also had a baptism through the Red Sea and a baptism with the cloud above them. That that was a baptism. But Moses, although he was in the water, surrounded by the water, and drawn out of the water, and he indeed took him and the whole country through the Red Sea more than once, but yet one of the last words we hear on all Moses is he hit the rock rather than speaking to the rock, and God said, you're not going to make it into the promised land. What about old Jonah? Jonah was in the water, surrounded by water for three days and three nights, as our Lord was three nights, three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. So he was in that fish. And he came out of that water. Interesting, the name Jonah in its root is the word dove. Interesting. Now he came out of that water, as you know, and he went through three days. It wasn't much of a sermon, just three days, 30, 40 days comes destruction. That was his whole sermon. First, second, third point. 40 days comes destruction. Walked as fast as he could. Went through the city. Took him three days, a humongous city. Sit on the hillside waiting to see God destroy the place. Well, the last word we hear on old Jonah, he was angry at God because he didn't destroy the people. Now, with Christ, we see that these men had a baptism, but they failed after their baptism. Noah had a type of baptism, and he failed after the baptism, allowing that wicked world that he was a part of to remain a part of him and end up dragging him down. Moses in the water, surrounded by the water, taken out of the water. His name means drawn out of water. But yet, what do we find? That his flesh, which is too overwhelming, and the anger grabbed him, and, and in the heat of the moment, his anger flared once again, and, and he sinned. And then what do we see in Jonah? That evil wicked, demonic Assyrians there that lived in Nineveh. That bitterness had a foothold in him. He wasn't going to obey God, even though he knew what God wanted him to do. Old Satan had a foothold of bitterness in Jonah's heart. And although he obeyed God, we see that that demonic foothold of bitterness towards the Assyrian people still remained in Jonah's heart. Moses, or Noah felled the world got the better of him. Moses felled his old sinful flesh got the better of him. Jonah, after his baptism, felled the old devil got the better of him. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The three things that we fight against and sometimes lose against, don't we? What do we see in Christ's temptation? First of all, he's tempted with food. There you are. Self. Change this rock into bread and feel my needs right now, my fleshly appetites, like Moses' anger. Jesus now could feel his fleshly appetites, but he said no. He won over the flesh. But then the very next thing he does, he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said, cast yourself down, man, believe in the word. And Boy, wouldn't the world have looked at him in dazzlement and amazement going, wow. But he said, no, I'm not going to appeal to the world and try to tantalize them 
in that way? No, to the world. And finally, Satan said, bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, no, to Satan. Jesus conquered for us the flesh, the world, and the devil. Now, do we have victory over those three areas all the time? No, we don't. But we don't have to. Why? Because Jesus in his baptism fulfilled all righteousness. You see, he won over the world for me. His baptism was a baptism for me as well. And he conquered the world. He conquered the flesh. He conquered the devil. Not just at that time, but for you and me. Where were we at? We were with Christ when he was baptized. We were with Christ on the cross in that baptism. Remember when James and John came up and said, oh, let me be one on your right and one on your left. Jesus said, can you handle the baptism that I'm getting ready to be baptized in? Oh, yeah, sure. Sure, we can handle that baptism. Now, James and John was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, can we handle all that fame and fortune and, and still be humble? Yes, tough job, but we can do it, Lord. Can I have all that power and not abuse it? No problem, Lord. Can I take the glory of being on your right and on your left and everybody knows who we are more as much as they know? Can we handle all that glory? It's tough. Not everybody can do it, but me, James, yeah, we can do it. Jesus is thinking, okay, the baptism that I'm going to go through, you also will go through. What baptism? The baptism referring to his death. We all now have the certainty that we too can put to death the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul says, I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. I have crucified the world with all its passions and its desires. Let's read on, and you'll see in verse 6, knowing this, in Romans chapter 6, knowing this, that the, our old man was crucified with him. You see there? Back in Romans 6, verse 6, knowing this, this is our second knowing knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be what? Slaves of sin. Notice that word done away with. Or in the King James, it's not a very good translation at this time, it says destroyed. Because the word done away with is really not destroyed. As a matter of fact, it's an interesting word. It means to render inoperative or render entirely idle to paralyze it. That's literally what it means. So if you used to be able to use your arms and your legs and, and you were fine, but all of a sudden you get in an auto accident and you're quadriplegic. You can't move even your fingers. You can't move your toes. You can't move your legs or your arms and you're just stuck and they prop your neck up and you can't, that's it. Now, are you alive? <laughs> yes, but you're inoperative. This is the word here in verse 6. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be what? Paralyzed, made inoperative, uh, rendered entirely idle. That's what happened. 
Did our body of sin disappear? No, it didn't. Our body of sin is very much there. Can our body of sin be unparalyzed? Yes, it can. And that's what we're going to learn right now. So he goes on to say, Therefore we don't have to be slaves of sin. We're no longer slaves of sin. For he who has died has been what? Freed from sin. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Heaven's coming. That's a certainty. Knowing, verse 9, there's our third knowing, that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for what? For all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, exactly in the same identical fashion, you also, verse 11, reckon. The word reckon there isn't like they back in the south, well, I reckon I'll go down to the pond. That's not the word. It, it means, reckon means calculate. Sit down with your calculator, figure it all up. Punch it in. Stop for a minute, use your brain, figure it all up. Okay? So you had $100 in your pocket and it's all gone. You're going, man, somebody must have stole some money, but you have a pocket full of receipts. Stop. Add up your receipts and find out it adds up to $100. Nobody stole your money. It just burned a hole in your pocket. So in the same way, hold it. The Christian who's in sin, who's living a life of sin, who's empowered by sin, he's saying, why? This is not characteristic of a Christian. Sin shouldn't be having dominion over you. Sin shouldn't be controlling you. This isn't why Christ died. Now listen to this. So reckon yourselves to be what? Dead in deed or in fact or in certainty. Declare it to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it happen. You don't have to. That you should obey it in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Verse 15, what then shall we shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace certainly not so again that old carnal mentality that says all right i'm not under the law i'm under grace i can sin no listen why in verse 16 do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey you are the one slaves to whom you obey whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness but God be thanked that though we were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of unrighteousness, or uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness, Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you now are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you, are, you have your fruit in holiness and in the end everlasting life. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear me. This is the most important point. You as a Christian can be in as much bondage as any non-Christian to your flesh. We see in 1 Corinthians 11, those Christians were completely in bondage, completely unfruitful. There is no fruit in their life whatsoever. And God said, I'm going to go ahead and take you on home. That's why they were weak, sick, and even they died. They went ahead and God just said, you're a completely fruitless person. I'm just going to take you on to heaven now. We see in 1 Corinthians 5 where a man had married his father's wife and the whole church was rejoicing over, don't we have freedom? Boy, we can just do anything and still be right with God. And Paul said, the next time you're together, me with that, my spirit being there with you, kick that guy out of the church. Don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Get him out of there now. Let his body, kick him out of the church that his body would be destroyed, that his soul would be saved. See, there's a protection being in fellowship with other Christians. And I have seen Christians who want to be a part of the world, but they want to live with Christian men or live in a Christian house with women or still have a Christian wife or a Christian husband. Why? They like the protection that brings. They want to feed their flesh, but they want the protection of Christianity. And God says, no way. Get that shelter away from them. Just get them right out there. Let them eat, sleep, and, and, and spend day and night under the... The, the, the cloud of the devil. And I'll guarantee you, they'll be coming home with their tail between their legs wishing they could never be out there in that wilderness again. Now, there are some people in their theology that will tell you this. You've been predestinated, been predestinated, elected unto God. That's it. You will live the Christian life. It's part of the package. So they tell people, Hey, you're a Christian. You're going to just automatically make all the right choices. In a matter of a few months, it's going to happen. I tell you, that is completely a fallacy. The devil, the world, and your flesh will win every single time over you. You're no match for your flesh. You are no match for the devil and you are no match for the world. The Bible tells us that. The Bible says, if you make opportunity for the flesh, in Romans chapter 13, you will fulfill the lust thereof. You will. You make opportunity for your flesh, you will fall into your flesh, even as a Christian. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says, don't be deceived. Bad company will corrupt good morals. It's going to happen, folks. You hang out with the world, you will be entrapped by the world. You listen to the things of this world, you will be entrapped by the world. You see things that the world enjoys seeing, you will be entrapped by those things. It's a fact. It happens all the time where I'll have a girl or a guy come up and say, oh, you know, I fell in love with this person, and I know you want to prove, Brian, they're not a Christian, but they're a good person. They're better than most non-Christians. They're better than most Christians I know, and they're a very good moral person. They believe in God, and blah, 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 and I'm just in love with them, and it has to be God because I've never had these feelings for somebody before, and I know these feelings are from God because they're just such intense feelings of love. 
and I'll tell him, you know what? You could get the mangiest, ugly-looking old dog, and if that thing came and hung out at your porch long enough, you'd start feeding it. And it hung around for another year. You'd weep like a baby when that thing died. Why? Because God has brought this dog into your life. No. That's just our human nature. What we hang out with, we fall in love with. What we listen to is what we like to listen to. What we see is what we want to see more of. Where we sit, we want to sit there again. Whether it's in a particular seat here at church or whether it's a particular location in a classroom, get there early, get that chair in the back right corner. I got to have it, you know. That's, we are habitual beings. We want our flesh to repeat itself. It brings us comfort, and we want it. Now, you think about it, folks. There is no rhyme or reason to it other than our flesh. I see from time to time guys walking down the street with their pants halfway down their buttocks. <laughs> and their underwear are showing. Their boxer underwear are sticking out. And you know, to some people, that is cool. Now, I really can't say that much more because when I was in junior high, I had a pair of earth shoes that in the front and in the back, they were four inches high. I was, you know, seven foot nine, you know, with these things on. I practically broke my leg a dozen different times. I would get to school with these things and realize, I can't play basketball today. But I would try. Try to dunk it, just stand there, throw it to me. <laughs> then you look at all the psychedelic clothes. I remember when I was a kid, I, I had to have bell-bottom pants. And my mom said, man, the hippies wear those. You're not a hippie, young man. Bell-bottom pants. And I just had to, I mean, that was just the coolest thing. You know, if the bottom of your pants opened up. I just cried and cried and cried. I, and Mom, please don't make me wear straight-legged pants to school, but bell-bottoms, you know. And then in a few, la a few years later, it's like, I can't wear bell-bottoms. Mom, that's, you're going to wear them. I paid $50. You're going to wear those things. Mom, you know, I'm gonna, let me make short pants out of them. I can't wear bell-bottoms. Man, that's the most uncool thing, you know. Think about it, folks. We can get entrapped by it. Have you ever been by a campfire and just the smoke blows your way and your eyes hurt and you're coughing and you're choking? Do you want to live by where the smoke blows your way? No, but we can wrap it up in little tiny little boxes of cigarettes. We don't have to stand there and let the whole thing. We can just get it directly, suck it right into our lungs. <laughs> now explain to me why somebody would want to kill themselves with smoke inhalation. But that's cool. That's the thing to do. They said right now there's a giant rise amongst the teenage population. But you think about it, it's so stupid. Or cigars, you got these things that are so gigantic. 
It's like having a rake stick in your mouth, you know? It's killing them. Or people who chew. Chew tobacco. This is wonderful. I can spit stuff that looked like somebody threw up everywhere. But man, it tastes good. Have you tried bubble gum? You can throw that away when you're done. And it doesn't kill you. It also tastes good. You think about the things we do in this body. Many of those things bring us into bondage. We don't have a choice now. I can't stop smoking. I have to keep going. Even now they have a hole drilled in their neck. And they have to put now the cigarette in the hole in their neck. <gasps> because if they don't, they'll cough and cough and cough and cough. They, ha they have to have it now. Or the guy that has lip cancer or tongue cancer or mouth cancer and, and their lip has had, they had to cut off a big giant portion of their lip and their teeth are always showing like the Joker, you know, in the Batman story or something. And you're looking, oh, it's sick. It's hideous looking. I should have stopped back when he was 16 though, man. It was cool. Smoking and spitting at the same time. And you're thinking, this is so stupid. Now, those are the things that affect the body. But we today in our country have totally ignored the soul. Folks, there is a real soul. Just like you have a heart, just like you have lungs, just like you have a mind, you have a soul. It can't be seen with the physical eye, but it is a very much a part of you and it affects your will. There's something that causes bravery, honesty, nobility, courage. There's something that that sees a big bully picking on a little kid and just makes him go over there, even though the big bully can, can beat him up too, he'll still fight and let the big bully beat him up. So I'm not going to let you do that. What makes that happen? It's their soul. It's their will. It's their emotion. It's their ability to say, this is right and this is wrong, and even if it takes my life, I'm going to stop this wrong. I'm going to put my life on the line. That is what makes this life worthwhile. It's destroyed. Yesterday I was at the Padre baseball game and a plane comes by and it has come to the after game party at the strip tea joint, whatever it was. And I was with Buddy and he goes, hey, Brian, what are you doing after the game? And I said, why? Why is that? And he goes, look up there, you know. And, and I said, if I were to go to that strip tea joint, I would cry like a baby. I would sweep the whole time I was there. When I would see these women up there, knowing that somebody's daughter, that is somebody's sister, and their soul is gone. They're gone. Their soul is gone. For them to harden their hearts against the conscience of God, for them to have no more emotion of joy or of hatred or of love or of peace, they have destroyed their soul, maybe irreversibly. Even if they became a Christian tomorrow, in their lifetime, their soul would never heal completely. That's what the Proverbs tells us. He who goes with the prostitute destroys his own soul with her. She leads him down into the pit of hell. It's destruction. We are soulish. I say to you, Christian, here tonight, 
it's up to you. Whatever you give your hand to, your hand's going to want to do again. Whatever you do with your eye, your eye is going to want to do again. Now think about it. You used to, before you were a Christian, gave your hand to do things that finally made you so ashamed. Why do you want to do that again? Now there's a concept that says you don't dive into it. You just give yourself a little bit to it and it sort of tames the flesh. In other words, I'm not really into pornography. I just, every once in a while, get a couple peaks here and there, and it sort of satisfies me. You know what that's like? That's like the little boy who goes to the zoo and just likes to wait till the lion turns around and touches the back of him. Eventually, he's going to be touching the back of him, and Mom's going to say, what are you doing? He looks around going, ah! And then he turns around, his hand and his arm is gone, you know? The lion's chewing on it. Or it's like the person who wants a venomous snake at home. And they think, oh, it's nice, protected in this glass with that heavy lid. It'll never give out. It'll be in there. Well, most people, sooner or later, those things do bite them. Earthquake comes. Earthquake, oh, some stuff broke. I'll get up and see what it is, and... There you got a reptile racked around your leg. Or you go to feed it, and you're thinking, oh, it's back over in the corner. All of a sudden, oh, I didn't know it could shoot like that. Well, too late now, sucker. (laughs) A lot of good that information is going to do in the coffin. In the same way with you. One day that pornography takes your life. One day that drinking takes your life. I had a friend whose parents would socially drink. And they grew up very strong Christian people, but they socially drank. But the kids grow up saying drinking's okay. They drank in high school, they drank in college, and now their kids are alcoholics. Their parents are bummed. Mom and Dad, they were seemed to be able to control it. Oh, they drink wine twice a year. But although they never got bit, their kids did. Be careful, parents, because, see, your, your kids always have a li- one-step liberty more. It's like the pastor. Oh, if the pastor did that, then, you know, I don't have to be quite as holy and as righteous as the pastor, so I can do it and a little bit more because, you know, I'm just a church member. That's our fleshly mind. And I just say to you today, whoever you give your members to is who you're going to be a slave to, but you're going to be a slave to somebody. Now, Paul says, I hate that terminology, slave and all of that. But I say it to you because of your fleshly mind. Now, let me tell you something. If you start reading the Bible three hours a day, you know what you want to continue to read three hours a day? The Bible. Oh, Brian, that seems out of balance. Really? How many hours of TV do you watch a day? Oh, well, that's not out of balance because the world does that. You know, let's see, that's what we're looking at now, aren't we? We're comparing ourselves with ourselves. Paul says, not wise. So we're coming back to saying, let's compare ourselves with the world and be a notch better than the world. We're dead. Because the world is getting more evil, and you know what? We are one notch better than the world. And we are evil ourselves. I just say to you, go to the Lord and say there's one way, one truth, one life. What is that one life? It's the life Jesus lived. Can I conquer the world? Yes. Jesus already did on the cross and in his baptism for you. 
You now just need to reckon these members dead indeed to sin and reckon these members alive unto God. It's already been done through Jesus' baptism and Jesus' death. And we now, we're on that cross with him. We went in that baptism. We symbolize that in water baptism, that yes, we were there with the cross. On, we were with Christ on the cross. It already is a done deal. Just start practicing it and you'll see. Oh man, I, I just crave that world and that flesh. You know what? You'll find that's not the case. When you start living a life of holiness and purity, guess what? You don't want to go backwards. It's like if you go down to the store and, and there's a certain brand of green beans and somebody said, try it out. You've never tried it out. This is the best brand. I've never tasted green beans like this. And the next time you go to the store and you have four choices of green beans, what kind are you going to buy? The ones that tasted the best. When you've tasted the best of the best, you never want to go back. When you've tasted of purity and holiness and righteousness, when you've fed your soul with hours a day of the word and hours a day of prayer and, and just your whole joy and entertainment is fellowship with other believers, guess what? You never want to go back. Now, can you train your body to enjoy the things of the world again? You can, but you're going to end up back in that bondage again. I say to you today, let go of every weight that so easily entangles you. You can. The world can't. The world wants to give up its, its sin. It can't do it because that sin hasn't been ripped from their heart, and they're going to do what's ever in their heart. They can't deceive themselves. You're going to do what's in your heart. doesn't matter what I say here tonight or what I say in a million other sermons. You are going to do what's in your heart. If in your, in your heart is the want to love God, to seek God, to put God first, to do God's will, that's what you're going to do. But I'm telling you tonight that even though your heart is loving the Lord, your body can be in bondage. And now you're not free. All of a sudden your heart says, read the Bible, and you go, ah, ah, I want to, I want to. i got to watch my favorite TV show, though. Ah, 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 ah. See, another TV show. Change the channel. Oh, another TV show. Oh. Well, I didn't read the Bible, but oh. I'm so tired. God understands. I'm so God. He's glad he's a God of mercy. He understands that I didn't read my Bible in the last year and a half, but he, he knows. He's such a God of grace. I'm so glad he's a God of grace. Yeah, great. He loves you. He's taking you to heaven. But you're fruitless, and you're weak. The devil's pounding you. The world's pounding you. You're a curse to the church. You're a curse to your family. You're not fruitful. You're not a blessing to anybody because you're living a life after the flesh rather than a life after the Spirit. The whole Christian concept is, I am to live in such a way that I'm a blessing to everybody. I'm a blessing at work. I'm a blessing at home. I'm a blessing to my neighbors. I'm a blessing to strangers. I'm just, you bump into me, you're going to get splashed on the blessings of God. That's the way it's supposed to be. But we've brought down to a common denominator saying, well, as long as I didn't kill anybody, I'm doing one notch better than the world. That's not the way it's to be, folks. We are to be Jesus Christ, the salt, the light of Christ everywhere we go. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Cause us, Lord, to understand that we have complete power of choice, a choice to serve you or a choice not to serve you, even as Christians. And Lord, help everybody here tonight know by the power of your Holy Spirit, put it into their hearts that you're not going to make that choice for them that every day they've got to make that choice whom they will serve. 
with their hands, with their eyes, with their brain, with their mouth, with their feet. Lord, there's many here tonight, Lord, that are in bondage and many feet that are going to go back to that sin, many hands, many eyes, many ears that are going to go right back to the secular music, back on the internet, back to the parties, back to the old friends, even though they've been told clearly that this is killing them, putting them in bondage, causing even a spiritual separation, even while they're a born-again believer, they're separated from you, that they're going to go back to it. Lord, please, pour your Holy Spirit a conviction upon them tonight, and let them not continue one more second in that which grieves your heart, grieves my spirit, damages the soul, damages the mind, damages a fruitful life that we have. Please help us, Lord, to live a life for you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Romans chapter 6.